as you descend from the surface, you're descending through shades of blue down to about sort of 200, 250 meters, even 300 meters, depending where you are, you'll have light. And then after that depth, because it's pitch black, you're surrounded by darkness. There is still light around, but we can't sense it with our eyes. This is Oliver Steeds. You're then in the inky blackness of space, inner space, Oliver is the Chief Executive and Mission Director of Necton, a not-for-profit research foundation using state-of-the-art technology to accelerate the scientific exploration and protection of our oceans. The majority of animals in the deep sea, beneath 200 metres, who live in the dark, are bioluminescent. They glow in the dark. So if you strobe the water around you, then they can light up. There's one particular story from Patrick. That's Patrick Lahey, president of Triton Submarines and one of the world's leading submersible manufacturers and pilots. He was diving the Solomon Islands and there was this place, I think they were down about 500 metres or so, and a sheer drop. And pitch dark, they flashed the water, strobed the water, and the whole place lit up. And what was happening with these little fish was swimming over this waterfall and then descending down. So it looked like this incredible waterfall of sea stars. These animals just having what looked like a lot of fun as they were just being caught in the currents and then diving up and coming back out and and all sorts. The biggest waterfall on Earth is underwater. You have these underwater lakes as well, where if you're down there looking at them, you're seeing waves lapping at a shore. It's absolutely extraordinary. I'm Lucy Johnston, and this is the Future Lab podcast, where I bring you the stories behind the technological innovations taking imagined visions of the future and turning them into a present day reality. I'm the curator of the annual Future Lab Live exhibition at the Goodwood Festival of Speed, and I study the impact of new technologies on industry, society, and the world around us. In this podcast, I'm meeting people who are tackling the biggest problems facing planet Earth and developing technologies that will change how we live our lives. In this episode, The Race for the Deep. This is the race of our time, of our generation, a race to protect our ocean before we destroy its resilience to support life on our planet. You don't have to be in the water to really appreciate how central it is to life. Um, you You can just walk on the beach. In order for us to better understand and hopefully to fall in love with the ocean, we need to connect. We need to be able to have a conversation. This podcast is brought to you by a medical diagnostic company called Randox. And over the series, we're hearing about the work they do and meeting some of the people who work there. 
My name is Laura Mooney and I'm a scientist with Randox and I work between Randox Laboratories and Randox Health. Laboratories is the side of the business that makes diagnostic equipment for labs and Randox Health is the side that everyday people can access to get personalised health checks and information. Like many of the people we'll hear from over this series, Laura's been at Randox for a long time. I am with Randox now 10 years. Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> Within my role, I try to translate the science into terminology that can be understood by the general public. People can come to Randox Health Clinic, have their testing done, all done through uh, blood sampling. Then it's my role to sort of help with that education process and making sure that they understand the testing that they've had done and what it means for them on an individual level. After a PhD and 10 years at Randox, she still loves the always evolving world of diagnostics. It's the learning, it's the discovery. You know, it's the fact that there's always something new and change. Not everything she learns is welcome though. Like when she's at a dinner party and friends or family hear about what she does for a living. You get their full medical history and you're like, what do you wish me to do with this information? <laughs> Leave me with my wine, thanks. <laughs> A lot of Laura's work is around helping people understand the causes and the symptoms of a stroke. And we're going to come back to Laura later in the episode to hear more about that. Now, here's the Future Lab podcast. Why do we know so little about the ocean? In 2021, it's still a largely untapped source of knowledge about the planet. Yet the survival of that planet depends on it. It's the life source that sustains us all, whether or not you live by the sea. So just why is it still the case that 95% of the ocean remains unexplored? Until last year, more people had stood on the surface of the moon than had visited the deepest parts of the ocean. Much like the space race that came before, we're now entering a race for the deep. But it's not the race you think. It's not nation against nation. It's a race against time. To save the ocean before it's too late. Oliver Steeds again. Ocean exploration is a lot to learn from space exploration in terms of storytelling. I love to imagine that you're possibly on your research ship right now, but I'm guessing maybe not. I wish I was on our research vessel in the Indian Ocean, which is where we're focusing our work. But right now I am in a, an ocean city, which is called London, and wishing I was far out in the big blue. Oliver is one of the people revolutionising how we engage with the ocean. From pioneering new technology that's letting us go deeper than ever before, to finding new ways to tell stories about the mysterious depths of our unexplored oceans. Oliver wants people to look at the ocean and feel the same sense of hope and wonder they feel when an astronaut embarks on a mission to space. 
It's a lot easier for us to look up to the stars and be inspired wherever we are in the world. It's harder for us to go to the edge of shore and look into this vast wilderness that is our, our ocean where the surface of the sea is a mirror to our sky and traditionally there's great fear associated with those depths. You look at the early pictures of the maps, the unknown of, you know, there be dragons out there. Or the sea monsters. Exactly. So there is a kind of fear associated with the deep sea which has been around you know, since time and more and in many ways, we have a, a race for the deep right now, a race to discover what's there before we destroy it, a race to protect our ocean before we destroy its resilience to support life on our planet. And Oliver might just be the perfect person to help shift our age-old fear of the ocean to a new curiosity, to make us pay attention to the urgency of this race for the deep. Before founding Necton, Oliver had a whole other life as an investigative journalist, working for broadcasters like Channel 4, the Discovery Channel and NBC. And then, in 2015, he went on a reporting trip that changed everything. It started on an island of Scotland, and one of the Western Isles of Scotland. I was sent up there to report on a small marine protected area in the island of Arran. Uh, and how that was being established to protect you know, a very small area of, of sea from trawling that was going on around it. So I dived down and with scuba to see what was going on, report on, on there, you know, with a microphone in your, in your helmet and whatnot. There was one area in those waters that was protected. Oliver says that part was beautiful. Well, I mean, it looked like a you know, underwater jungle. These big kelp forests, everything else, with a huge amount of life down there. And then at the boundary where this marine protected area was, you step in across that line. And what I saw down on the seabed was it's a wasteland. Like an undersea desert. You could see tracks of where the, the seabed trawling had been going on. And it was devastating. The impact of seeing that was one thing. But Oliver went away and did more research. He discovered we're clear-cutting up to 300 times the amount of our seabed every year compared to land. What we're essentially doing is getting a massive great bulldozer and driving it across the countryside, just felling all the trees, destroying all the farms, scooping up all the wildlife just to catch a couple of cows. That's essentially what we do when we trawl the seabed. That trip to Scotland was a wake-up call for Oliver. Well, hold on a minute. I'm an investigative journalist and my job is to report on the underreported. And if I didn't know this, then chances are a lot of other people aren't going to know this. So I started reporting on it more and more, learning more and more about the ocean, meeting more and more scientists, and felt that a lot of my work, which I was doing as a journalist, was reporting in hostile environments, in difficult places where I put my life and other people's lives on the line to try and tell these really important stories. and. You know, I couldn't see the effect it was having. Sometimes you would, you'd see a change in policy. or But those things were very few and far between. And I thought, okay, well, look, I've got some skills here as a storyteller. There must be a way that I can contribute more to have a positive impact in the world. Oliver still saw himself as a journalist, but at that point, he decided to shift his focus. I met with a chap called Professor Alex Rogers at the University of Oxford. And we thought, right, let's try and do something here. They set up a charity and they named it Necton. It's a zoological noun, which means aquatic animals that can swim against the current. But we see ourselves as catalysts. So our mission is to try and accelerate our scientific understanding of the ocean and its protection, and try and find innovative ways to achieve that. 
So Necton works to bring scientists and journalists together to increase awareness and interest in what's going on in our oceans. And they're doing it in really clever ways. When it came to submersibles, we found there was a gap there. There wasn't a way to broadcast live from a submersible, like a small research submarine, the way astronauts can broadcast live from space. So Necton set about trying to do it. We were able, with our partners, to be able to broadcast live from the deep sea and tell the story live as it's happening. So no one had done wireless transmission from subs in the deep sea before, and it captured people's imagination. Necton had audiences tuning in live from 140 countries around the world. But what they do isn't only about storytelling. It's also facilitating huge steps forward in our scientific understanding of the oceans and the plants and animals that live there. Your first big mission, it was 2016. How do you even go about beginning to put something so complicated, so complex, so challenging together in terms of you know, having the research vessel, the submersible, the technology? Where did you start? Well, I started with a blank piece of paper because I was a journalist and I was not a mission director of submersible operations. So I had to learn <laughs> fast and had to get some brilliant people around me to tell me what to do and how to do it. So our strength is the sum of our parts. We have an incredible alliance of partners from around the world, some businesses and governments some scientists and media companies and others all coming together with the shared and common purpose to explore and protect our ocean. So we started in Bermuda. One of the reasons was that Bermuda had had a biological research station there for 100-odd years. And it was also it was the first place where people descended into the deep ocean for the first time. It was a chap called William Beebe and Otis Barton back in the 1930s. Beebe and Barton did their ocean exploration in an incredible contraption called a bathysphere. It was a spherical submersible designed to resist the enormous water pressure and just big enough to fit two people not very comfortably. Thanks to the legacy of Beebe, Barton and many others since, Bermuda has long been a focus for ocean research. We wanted to actually go and see, is there anything left to discover? And um, Alex sort of said, well, yeah. Oliver's colleague, Dr Alex Rogers, told him that through scuba diving, scientists have been exploring the surface of the ocean, while people with deep-sea submersibles have been visiting the seabed. However, there's a layer in between that we haven't really been paying attention to. People have been missing this other layer from like 100 metres down to three, four, five hundred metres. Let's go and have a look there. So that's what we did. We went to look on these seamounts, these undersea mountains. And what we found was a whole new ecosystem that had never been described before in history. No one had realised it was there because no one had looked. There were some other scientists working in Curacao at the same time, and they found something similar as well. So we were able to put this together and go, hold on a minute, there is this new ecosystem, this new habitat, where there are unique species at this depth, which are found nowhere else in the world. This new ecosystem was found between 120 and 300 metres deep, and they named it the Rarephotic Zone, the Rare Light Zone. But we'd found the largest new ecosystem found in the world in decades, just because no one had looked at. And to me, that was staggering. And also an extraordinary thing to be part of, to be down there in the submersibles. Oliver describes what it felt like to be there as the team was discovering a brand new ecosystem. 
remember hearing from Alex, who was in the other sub, he's waxing lyrical. I said, my God, we just found this forest. It was teeming with life. And then a lot of that life was then flowing down the flanks of these undersea mountains and feeding more life where we found these whip corals, these big black corals, which like the oak trees of this environment down there. Phenomenal. Absolutely stunning. And then he and the scientists started to piece together the evidence of all these different new species to suddenly realize, hold on a minute, there's something more going on than just a forest. There's a whole ecosystem, a whole habitat, a whole unique species that adapted to live at this depth. That just blew my mind. It still does. That, you know, we can still discover this stuff on our planet. And we've only scratched the surface of the ocean, literally. And yet we're finding, still finding these things. We discover about 2,000 species or so a year. We discovered something like 230,000 so far. But yeah, there could be up to 10 million species that are, remain undescribed. So we hardly know what's there. And yet what we do know is that it's vital for the survival of our species. You know, it provides oxygen, food, stores large carbon store on the planet, regulates our planet's climate, our planet's chemistry and everything. And yet we don't know how healthy the heart of our planet is. This being the Future Lab podcast, can you describe a little about the technology that you're using? You know, what innovations are helping you to do this research and to discover more about what's happening in the depths? The two most exciting technological advancements in my mind to support the scientific exploration of the ocean are the advancements of autonomous underwater vehicles or autonomy and around sequencing. Genome sequencing. Because the cost of both has come down significantly over the last few years and the speed in which we can operate particularly the speed at which we can sequence genomes has accelerated so we've now come to a time where we have the capability to explore more of our ocean which means we can explore more of our planet and discover more of our ocean more of our planet in the next 10 years than we have in the last hundred thousand okay wow which is extraordinary mind-blowing and that comes down to the autonomous systems, the advancements of different underwater technologies, whether it be remotely operated vehicles or human-occupied vehicles, but particularly autonomy and the sensors and other systems which we need to be able to actually determine what's down there. So that combination is what's groundbreaking. Necton has been genome sequencing using a tiny piece of equipment from a company called Oxford Nanopore Technologies. It's miniaturized sequencing technology. It's called a minime, which you can plug into your, your laptop or, uh, and you can do it on the move. So if I've got a bit of DNA, I can stick it on there and I can be on my bike or back of my Land Rover and I could be running the first genome sequence of a particular animal. That's how flexible it is. So that, what that starts to achieve is the democratization of scientific discovery and exploration, which is what we need because there's vast inequity and disparity that exists, particularly in the ocean where you know, the majority of scientific exploration is undertaken by high income nations, but often operating in the waters of low or middle income nations. This is what's frequently known as parachute science which is this kind of this colonial approach where you go in, you take all their data, you don't really talk to the locals and you walk off with everything and you're not there to deliver outcomes which are actually benefit for the people where you'll be operating. It's one of the things which we need to counter as well. So it's not just about the technology side, it's how that technology is utilised. Technology transfer, knowledge exchange, a more democratic approach to it to challenge these inequities needs to occur. And that's starting to happen. That's why it's becoming so exciting. 
Yes, the access to those technologies just completely changes the game, doesn't it? When you have a person in the deep sea, you have a connection with that person. And I think that's a really important part of storytelling because people can relate to people sitting in the great depths of the ocean with the crushing pressure around them, which if it comes through your pressure hole, is going to atomize you in a nanosecond. People can relate to that. People can relate if someone is looking out of the window saying, oh my God, I've just seen a glow-in-the-dark shark. I've just seen a bioluminescent waterfall. I have seen a six-gill shark chowing down on the remains of a whale. I have seen whatever it may be. You can emote when you have someone there within that environment speaking to you directly. The ocean contains multitudes, from some of the smallest life forms on the planet to the biggest, the blue whale. And the tools we use for ocean research also exist across a wide spectrum of scale. From Oliver's miniaturised genome sequences to this. We're missing a very valuable tool in the toolbox. It's called an underwater habitat. In the case of Proteus, we're planning on building the International Space Station of the Sea. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, we spoke to Laura, who's bilingual in science and English. It's her job to explain the science behind Randox's tests to the general public. One of the tests that Laura has to explain is for strokes. There are two main types of stroke. You have an ischemic stroke, and this is a stroke that's caused most often by a, a blood clot. So the clot lodges in a blood vessel and prevents blood from getting to that portion of the brain. Or you can have a hemorrhagic stroke. And in a hemorrhagic stroke, there's actually a rupture of the blood vessel leading to bleeding. And in the same way, then that deprives the brain tissue of oxygen. When brain cells don't have enough oxygen, they'll quickly start to die. And that can cause permanent damage to other body functions. It's a leading cause of death and disability in the UK. Around 100,000 strokes occur in the UK each day. And it's estimated that around one in six people will experience a stroke in their lifetime. So it's a huge issue. It can have a very lasting impact on a person's life and quality of life. Speed is of the essence when it comes to diagnosing and treating a stroke, because the longer the brain is deprived of oxygen, the worse the effects can be. Time is an absolute priority, you know, time is brain. So Randox realised that there was a need for a much more sensitive um, and rapid way of of testing for stroke, and that's where the, the, the stroke biochip came in. You might remember Randox's biochip from previous episodes, It's a 9x9mm ceramic square, which lets scientists carry out multiple diagnostic tests at once using a single blood sample. The stroke biochip can be used for crucial diagnosis in A&E and hospital wards. So it's a very non-invasive test that can help to not only identify that a stroke has happened, but can help to discriminate between the type of stroke. This point about discriminating between types of stroke is really important, because ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes can be hard to tell apart, but they're pretty much treated with an opposite approach. If a doctor doesn't know which type of stroke they're dealing with, the result can be fatal. 
Later in the episode, we'll hear how Randox's biochip technology can help doctors take the right course of action fast when a stroke happens. Bonjour, my name is Fabien Cousteau. I'm a third-generation ocean explorer and aquanaut. Fabien is the grandson of the great explorer Jacques Cousteau, and he spent most of his adult life dedicated to the old family business. As an ocean explorer, it's a, a duty and an honor to be able to come back with the stories of our adventures, our expeditions, what we've learned with our scientists on our group, and be able to cater to that kind of interaction, discussion with those who will never get a chance to experience that. In order for us to better understand, to better connect with, and hopefully to fall in love with the ocean and its uh, sentient beings that call it home, we need to connect. We need to be able to have a conversation. Like Oliver from Necton, Fabian believes that ocean research and conservation has to be paired with a strategy for communicating the wonders of the ocean to everyone on Earth. And his latest project is particularly ambitious. He's building an entire laboratory under the sea. This incredible piece of infrastructure will be called Proteus. We've traditionally used tools like boats, submarines, AUVs, ROVs, scuba diving to explore the ocean. And those are all valuable in their own realms and rights. But we're missing a very valuable tool in the toolbox. It's called an underwater habitat. In the case of Proteus, we're planning on building the International Space Station of the Sea. And what that habitat does underwater that a marine laboratory, if you will, does underwater, is that gives us unprecedented access to the ocean the way none of those other tools can. Fabian says there's a vast difference between what you can do with a submarine compared to an underwater habitat. A submarine allows for you to be a visitor temporarily underwater, but you are segregated from the environment because you're trying to keep the inside pressure at a very comfortable one atmosphere. Right? That allows for you to go back to the surface and go home immediately when you surface. With a habitat, it's exactly the polar opposite. Instead of avoiding decompression obligations, you saturate at the ambient pressure. This means the air pressure inside the habitat is the same as the water pressure outside the habitat. So if you're based at three atmospheres, right? so let's say uh, 20 meters or 66 feet, then the inside air pressure is also three atmospheres. What that allows for us to do is be immersed in the environment. And instead of being relegated to diving for minutes per dive and then having to go back to the surface, now our aquanauts can dive virtually infinite amounts of time. So it allows for an enormous coefficient of time that's not afforded any other way. Fabian's idea for Proteus came after he completed Mission 31, a project where he and a team did a record-breaking 31-day stint in an undersea laboratory called Aquarius. It's a glorious 450 internal square feet, within which six people live and work for days or potentially a week or two. 
It was built in the early 1980s, so it's over 30-some-odd years old. Through Mission 31, Fabian saw just what could be achieved when scientists have a way of staying underwater for extended periods. We were able to do, despite our limitations, over three years worth of scientific experiments in those 31 days. 9,800 articles were printed based around Mission 31. We were, for the first time, able to have Wi-Fi at the bottom of the sea. That was better than my apartment in New York City. So we were able to do, you know, Skype in the classroom sessions and use other social media platforms to, to do live outreach, both inside and outside the habitat. And so that really kind of got people curious. And that's the way we need to connect with people. As successful as Mission 31 was, Fabian also saw that Aquarius had limitations. It's uh, very small in internal square footage, so you're limited in terms of what you can populate the internals with, whether it's technology or people. So the question became, what if we could build a modern underwater habitat where scientists and aquanauts could live for weeks at a time? Somewhere that had the space and the flexibility to conduct a much wider range of undersea research. The habitat would facilitate unprecedented learning opportunities for scientists and provide an amazing outreach opportunity too. Being able to connect with people the way the International Space Station does, get people to dream, wonder, hope, maybe aspire to be the next aquanaut, or at the very least, to think about things like plastic pollution, hydrocarbon pollution, overfishing, all those things, but in ways that are sexy. So Fabian had a vision. Now it was time to find a collaborator. Someone who could help bring this vision to life. That's when he met Eve Bihar. I grew up in the punk era, and so the permission to make, to be an amateur, but to build things and, you know, to make them for yourselves and friends, it was a very sort of dynamic environment. Future Lab is brought to you by Randox. Earlier, Laura Mooney told us how Randox's biochip technology can be used to help diagnose strokes using a single blood sample from a patient. The two main types of stroke, ischemic and hemorrhagic, require very different treatments, and it's really important that a doctor knows which type they're dealing with. One of the, the sort of key treatments of stroke is to use um, thrombolytic therapy, and these are like clot-busting drugs. So you imagine if there's an ischemic stroke and there's a blood clot lodged somewhere in a blood vessel to the brain, if you can administer clot-busting drugs, you can dissolve that clot and help to sort of reduce the ongoing damage to the brain. Clot-busting drugs are ideal for ischemic strokes, but if you give those same drugs to a patient with a ruptured blood vessel, as in a hemorrhagic stroke, it can cause massive problems. If you were to inadvertently administer clot-busting drugs to someone who is bleeding, the consequences could be catastrophic because they're going to continue to, to bleed in the brain. That's why it's essential that doctors can discriminate between the types of stroke. The other thing that's important is, is time. A patient presenting with a stroke will be rushed into hospital for tests and treatment. These tests take time, and in that time, a stroke patient's condition can get much worse. I've talked about these clot-busting drugs, but they're really only effective within the first four and a half hours of the onset of a stroke. So if someone presents to hospital and doesn't get tested and diagnosed until six hours after the sort of initiation of the stroke event, then those treatments are not useful. 
So that's where Randox's biochip technology can also really help. The thing with the stroke biochip is that it can help to identify or rather discriminate between the ischemic and the hemorrhagic stroke, but it can also help to pinpoint time from stroke onset. This means that doctors can determine if the stroke occurred within the past four and a half hours and how effective the clot-busting drugs are likely to be. You can find out more about the work Randox does by visiting randoxhealth.com. Eve Bihar is a founder of Fuse Project, a design agency based in San Francisco. What we want to put design at the service of is big ideas, new ideas for the 21st century. For me, the problems that we're looking at need a humanistic answer whether it's sustainability, whether it's the environment, whether it's um, making technology accessible. What design does is it really is the glue between all those different fields, science, research, engineering. Eve and Fabien Cousteau were introduced by mutual friends. Of course, I knew about his passion for the oceans, but um, I communicated to him my own experiences. Being a surfer, being in the ocean every week, um, I can really see and feel the changes that are brought about by global warming and pollution. Perhaps surprisingly, for a Swiss boy brought up in a landlocked country, water has always been at the centre of Eve's life. When I grew up on Lake Geneva, around Lausanne, being in the lake, being on boats or windsurfing or swimming was always a way to, to escape, to relax, to enjoy, you know, to feel. And it's, it's the same today. I'm lucky to be uh, living here nearby the ocean and I'm able to go surf. I'm able to spend time on the water. You don't have to be in the water to really appreciate how central it is to life. Um, you, can, you can just walk on the beach. But being a surfer, of course, gives you a different perspective because you are looking back at Earth from, from the ocean. You're looking back at the beach and our civilization from the water. Fabian explained his idea to Eve that he wanted to build an underwater habitat that facilitates advanced scientific research while also acting as a rallying cry to save our oceans. You know, we all dream about going to the International Space Station, but, you know, Fabien is really leading the back to the bottom of the sea initiative. And we wanted together to build a beautiful environment for science and one that would, you know, really catalyze discovery. So that's what Proteus represents. So Eve and his team at Fuse Project began to think about what it would take to achieve this vision. The brief or the, you know, the aim is to create an underwater environment that is comfortable, that people will be able to stay in for weeks and uh, do their research in similar ways that you would do on the surface, but of course with all of the constraints that uh, being underwater represents. Constraints around humidity, light personal space, food, and so on. Very quickly, we realized that the station has to solve human problems, scientific problems, and uh, social problems. For example, food um, underwater is very important, very constrained. Um, so we have a way for the aquanauts um, that are in the station to grow their own foods <laughs> underwater. Uh, in terms of light, for example, 
Proteus has a lot of skylights that are facing up towards the surface. Maximizing the amount of light inside Proteus is critical. We also thought, for example, about exercise, movement, um, because obviously if you are in the station for long periods of time, you don't really have the opportunity to go for a walk, to move a lot. And so we have this ramp that connects the top to the bottom part of Proteus. It's a circular ramp on a slight incline, and just being able to sort of walk up and down it does represent exercise and movement. So what exactly will Proteus look like? What we designed is two large circular spaces that are slightly offset from each other. And the reason for the offset is then they both can receive light from above. When you have two floors, if they're next to each other, then you can get more light uh, into the space. The two main areas are connected by the ramp Eve just described. And then all around, um, there are portholes in which, over time, different modules can be added. So we call them pods. And the reason for the pods is it's important to have flexibility in an environment like Proteus to be able to add laboratories and specific equipment or uh, more sleeping quarters. The main spaces are for work with the lower floor being a research lab and the upper floor is a gathering place for meetings, communication, eating. And then the attached pods contain sleeping quarters, wet labs, decompression chambers, medical bays. All this has been designed to make Proteus adaptable for a wide range of purposes. Different labs, different governments, different universities will be participating in Proteus and they could bring their own equipment through the pods that attach to the uh, outer circular main volumes. One of the most fascinating things you've talked about, which totally blew my mind, was how Proteus will be placed into the ocean and how that impacts what materials they can use. So the two circular spaces will be attached to the bottom of the ocean through sort of large metal poles, and then the pods can be added over time. The way you install underwater structures in the ocean is you just flood them with water (laughs) and drop them to the bottom of the ocean, and then remove all the water and uh, dry the inside. We basically have to design an interior that will get flooded with salt water for a day or two. So the materials used on the interior areas of the station are very critical. It had never occurred to me that this is how you get a habitat like Proteus to the bottom of the sea. We can't use things like carpets or wood floors. And so we have a commitment with Fabian to use uh, recycled, reused materials. So we are using materials that will sustain over time in a, in a humid environment. Once Proteus is installed, how would a visitor get there? You travel down to the habitat in a submarine and enter from underneath. So there is a moon pool, and uh, a moon pool is essentially an opened-to-the-water area, but because it's upside down, you sort of emerge from water to the air. Um, So imagine taking an empty water glass into your bathtub and turning it upside down, and when you push down, you can see there's still air, even though the cup is underwater. That's what a moon pool is. 
There is equipment for the aquanauts to swim out through the moon pool into, into the ocean and, and, and equipment for the submarine. Imagine the magical feeling of getting into your scuba gear and lowering yourself into that moon pool, swimming out to explore the wildlife and plant life surrounding Proteus. We are human beings. We are amazing creatures at creating solutions, at figuring out problems. And so if there's a place that needs to be explored or that we could stand to learn from, then we just need to figure out a way to do it. Fabian believes missions like Proteus and Necton are key to unlocking all the knowledge we've still to gain from the hidden depths of the ocean and to protecting the life-sustaining resources it provides us. Whether it's the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the top of the highest mountain, which, believe it or not, is underwater, or an exploring a brand new patch of ocean that offers a fireworks display of life, that offers a soap opera unfolding in front of your eyes. Our decisions today, our push for exploration today is going to determine our future. I've been on expeditions regularly since I was seven. That I consider my most precious gift because that was the education. That was something that really gave me the addiction and curiosity to keep carrying on in the family legacy but also the fundamental understanding and love of what makes us possible on this planet. The Future Lab podcast is brought to you by Randox. It's presented by me, Lucy Johnston. The producers are Arlie Adlington, Paul Smith and Peggy Sutton from Something Else, with Neil Cole. The annual Future Lab Live is taking place at the Goodwood Festival of Speed from the 8th to the 11th of July. Click the link in our show notes to find out more and book tickets to see for yourself some of the incredible technologies we're talking about in this podcast. Thank you.